0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for all things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. instructed to guard against such a thing. In other words, Henry suggested his men had overreacted, and we declare, repute, and admit you as our true faithful subject and as our well-beloved cousin. York remained affronted. At some point after their meeting in Westminster, he sent Henry a second bill, ignoring the King's calming words, and pointing out that law and order appeared to be collapsing in England, and that I, your humble subject and liege man, Richard, Duke of York, offer to execute your commandments. He offered, in effect, to take over command of English government in its moment of crisis. This bill, unlike the first, seems to have been widely publicised among the people of London. It was somewhere between an open letter and a manifesto. Once again, he was politely rebuffed. Rather than handing over government to York, Henry said he intended to establish a sad and substantial council, in the which we have appointed you to be one. This was plainly not the answer that York was looking for, he left to London on October the 9th, heading first for East Anglia and then touring his estates in the Midlands. Behind him London stewed in a state of barely contained agitation. The streets were overrun with soldiers who rioted during the mayoral elections on October the 29th. There were frequent clashes between those who supported and those who opposed the Duke of York. Across the city, the royal arms were torn down and replaced with those of York, restored and then torn down again. If England's capital reflected the mood in the country at large, then peace lay a long way away. Among the chief impediments to York's taking a central role in government was the fact that someone else had already taken that post. Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, had returned from his catastrophic tenure in Normandy not to be censured or chastised, but rather to find himself appointed to more or less the position that York envisaged for himself. Within two weeks of his returning from France in August 1450, he was attending council meetings. On September the 8th, he had been put in charge of stamping out the embers of revolt in Kent and the southeast, and on September the 11th, He was appointed constable, the highest military post in England. Like York, Somerset was a kinsman of the King's. Unlike York, he had close links to Queen Margaret, just as he had been close to Henry's late mother, Catherine de Valois. As a nephew of Cardinal Beaufort, he was a familiar and comforting figure to Henry, whereas York was more of an outsider. Somerset also benefited from having no significant landed estates to manage. He was able to devote his full attention to the business of government, taking on tasks that had previously fallen to Suffolk. Those of concealing the vacuity of the king, allying the disparate interests of household, council and nobility, and somehow attempting to cope with the righteous anger of the commons. Assuming this task set Somerset on a direct collision course with York. Tension between the two men would dominate politics over the course of the next five years. Parliament met at Westminster on November 6, 1450, and immediately the two dukes and their supporters collided. Chains had been erected in the streets of London in an attempt to limit the excesses of what the Chancellor, Cardinal John Kemp, Archbishop of York, described as the people of riotous disposition. It was hard to avoid the sense that the capital was on the point of eruption, and that the fate of England hinged on the next action taken by the Duke of York. He arrived at Westminster on November the 23rd, one day before John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, his chief ally since his return from Ireland. Both men, and indeed all the lords who attended the November Parliament, brought with them large retinues of armed men. The author of one chronicle of the period describes seeing York come riding through the city his sword borne afore him, a mark of great pomp and authority. There was an atmosphere of barely restrained violence. One important element in York's adoption of the mantle of reform— was to take a bitterly critical stance toward the traitors who had allowed Normandy to be lost. No one was under any illusion. This meant Somerset. On November 30th a series of rancorous arguments broke out within the Parliament chamber at Westminster Hall. Several MPs demanded that justice be done against those who had failed so miserably to protect the King's possessions in France. During Parliament's session, Somerset was staying at Blackfriars, a pleasant Dominican house within the western wall of the city just next to the Ludgate, at the point where the River Fleet spilled down into the Thames. On Tuesday, December the first, while the Duke was eating, a large band of soldiers tried to break into the house in an attempt to arrest him. The danger to Somerset's life was so acute that he was smuggled out of the house by the Riverside Quay and taken down river on a boat, while the rioters remained at Blackfriars, ransacking and looting. Intriguingly, Somerset's saviours were the Mayor of London and another increasingly close Yorkist ally, Thomas Courtney, Earl of Devon, who was said to be acting on York's direct instructions. Earlier that day, the same group of men had authorised the public execution of a rioter. As London streets seethed with protest and disaffection, York was attempting to play both reforming firebrand and lawgiver. Like the late Humphrey of Gloucester, whose memory he seemed increasingly to cherish and defend, York wished to use his popularity with the common people as a platform from which to disrupt the political process and state his own claim to pre-eminence. In fact, he was just being a nuisance. It wasn't York's actions that eventually put the city into some sort of order, but a parade of all the lords of England united, riding through London on December the third. As one chronicler put it: Upon the Thursday the next day following, the king with all the lords come through the city all in harness, that is, wearing full armour and the citizens standing upon every side of the street in harness, which was the glorious sight that ever man in those days saw. London's mood began to cool. York's pandering to the populace had won him no favour whatever with the majority of the Lords. He remained close to the Duke of Norfolk, but when Christmas came, Parliament recessed, and the streets ceased to seethe. York found that his support was drifting away. He was appointed to a judicial commission in the new year to carry out justice on the Kent rebels, forcing a natural separation from the men who had cried his name the loudest. In the new year, Somerset, released from his protective custody in the Tower, resumed control of government, this time with some success. He took the king into the shires to suppress another uprising, this time led by one Stephen Christmas. This was followed by further exemplary punishment of rebels. In an attempt to bring more landed revenue back under Crown control, Somerset allowed a new act of resumption to pass Parliament, and began to try to raise money to defend Gascony, the next portion of English France that Charles VII was determined to conquer. He even managed to deal, after a fashion, with a long-running private war between the warring Courtney and Bonville families, whose murderous feuding continued to cause chaos in the West Country. York, meanwhile, appeared ever more to resemble a rabble-rouser rather than the agent of order and peace. His client and counsellor, Thomas Young's parliamentary petition of May 1451, demanding that York be recognized as heir presumptive, caused Parliament to be more or less instantly dissolved, and for York to be wholly excluded from any role in government. The Duke's great play, to rescue the Crown by inserting himself at its right hand, had it seemed come to nothing. He spent the rest of the year on his estates, brooding. The collegiate church of St. Martin's Le Grand in the northwest quarter of the City of London, abutting the Greyfriars on one side and the Goldsmiths Hall on the other, had a long history of independence. Anyone who entered the college, claiming the right of sanctuary, could, if their request was granted, be hidden inside the precincts and shielded by the charters of privilege which had long ago been granted to its inhabitants. For this reason, the College had for years been a favourite hideaway for criminals, ne'er-do-wells, and escaped prisoners to run to for protection from the vengeance of the law. Among its community in January 1452 was Sir William Oldhall, Chamberlain to the Duke of York, and a prominent politician who had served as a Speaker of the November 1450 Parliament. Oldhall had taken to St. Martin's Le Grand before dawn, on November the 23rd, 1451, prompted as the dean of the college would later write, by fear of heavy imprisonment and greatly alarmed for his life, he was accused most immediately of having taken part in the looting of Somerset's possessions from the house of the Blackfriars in 1450. But there were also wild allegations circulating that he had been plotting on York's behalf to stage a coup in which the king was to be kidnapped. That such a plan was really afoot seems highly improbable, but Old Hall's fear for his life was very real. So, too, was Somerset's desire to punish him. During the night of January 18, Walter de Burgh, the man who had accused Old Hall of looting Somerset's goods, was attacked in the street by three strangers and left for dead. In response, Somerset sent a high-ranking delegation to St. Martin's. The earls of Salisbury, Wiltshire and Worcester, along with two barons, one of London's sheriffs and a posse of servants, broke into the college shortly before midnight. They were, in the dean's pious words, armed with grievous force, not having the fear of God before their eyes, and they proceeded to smash all the doors and chests they could see, looking for Old Hall's hideout. Eventually they found him, concealed in the nave of the church. Old Hall was dragged out, loaded onto a horse, and bundled off to the Palace of Westminster to be interrogated. Breaches of sanctuary were serious matters. They were both illegal and offensive to God, and indeed Old Hall's removal caused such outrage and protest at St. Martin's Le Grand that within forty-eight hours he had been returned and placed back under holy protection, where he would remain for more than three years. It was a miserable period in his life, but more significant, Old Hall's removal from sanctuary marked an escalation in the feud between the Duke of York and the Government, represented as it was by Edmund, Duke of Somerset. York's position was impossible to sustain. He was too great a lord to be alienated from the government of a king whose inane rule demanded cooperation between the greatest men in the realm. In any event, alienation was one thing. Directly attacking York's closest servants was another. It was too much to be ignored. Evidently furious with Somerset for the insult to his honour, York sent letters to most of the towns in southern England— demanding that they join an orderly march on London to remove Somerset from power in the name of restoring good government to the realm. York made a great play of the fact that Charles VII's forces had all but overrun English possessions in Gascony and occupied the key city of Bordeaux. He reminded England's townsfolk of the derogation loss of merchandise, lesion of honour and villainy that had taken place in France already, and insisted that the vital trading port and last foothold of Calais was about to fall to. York insisted that he was the King's true liegeman and servant, and ever shall be to my life's end. He complained bitterly of the envy, malice, and untruth of the said Duke of Somerset, who, he said, laboureth continually about the King's Highness for my undoing, and to corrupt my blood, and to disinherit me and my heirs, and such persons as be about me. York wished to raise his quarrel above the personal. He stressed the importance of the common will, or the good of the country at large, and placed his personal enmity with Somerset in the context of a battle for the basic survival of England. Seeing that the said duke ever prevaileth and ruleth about the king's person, and that by this means the land is likely to be destroyed i am fully concluded to proceed in all haste against him with the help of my kinsmen and friends in such wise that it shall prove to promote ease peace tranquility and safeguard of all this land he wrote then as his letters circulated york ordered the tenants of his broadly scattered estates to take up arms and march once again with him to London. As York marched south at the end of February, Somerset brought the King and an armed retinue out to meet him. While York had his personal retainers and two significant allies in the Earl of Devon and Lord Cobham, the King was joined by a large number of bishops and at least sixteen other lords, including the three other most senior dukes in the land, Exeter, Buckingham, and Norfolk, York's erstwhile ally. It was a show of near total unity from the Lords. The Royal Force camped at Blackheath, and York eventually brought his several thousand men to rest about eight miles to the east at Dartford. They were equipped with cannons in the field, and seven ships loaded down with baggage and materiel in the Thames. Negotiations took place on March the 1st and 2nd. York presented a long list of grievances, for the great welfare and the common avail and interest of your Majesty Royal and of this your noble realm. Most were levelled against Somerset, who was blamed for the loss of Normandy, for inciting the breaking of the French truce at Fougere, for failing to defend English garrisons, for plotting to sell Calais to the Duke of Burgundy, and for embezzling money received at the abandonment of men. York's grievances were insufficient to impress the King, or, more pertinently, the rest of the Lords, who had gathered around him determined to maintain England's fragile peace. Far from being handed control of government and Somerset's head, York was taken to London, effectively a prisoner. Word quickly circulated that the King had tricked him into submission at Dartford by pretending that he would agree to his Articles of Reform and to have Somerset imprisoned on condition that York break up his army, only to go back on his word. If true, this was a remarkable and unworthy piece of humbug on the part of the King and his councillors. Trickery or no, a fortnight after the encounter at Dartford the Duke was humiliated in public. At a ceremony in St. Paul's Cathedral he was forced to swear a long oath of allegiance to the Crown. He announced himself to be a humble subject and liegeman to Henry VI, and promised to bear him faith and truth as to my Sovereign Lord, and shall do all the days unto my life's end. I shall never hereafter take upon me to gather any routs, or make any assembly of your people without your commandment or license, or in my lawful defence. As York spoke, he laid his hand first upon the Holy Gospels, and then on the altar cross. Finally, he was administered the sacrament to confirm that, With the grace of our Lord, I never shall anything attempt, by way of fear or otherwise, against your royal majesty and obeisance that I owe thereto. Beyond London, England remained perilously unstable. Scattered risings continued to break out in Suffolk, Kent, Warwickshire, Lincolnshire, Norfolk, and elsewhere, revealing the fundamental difficulty of ordering political society at the highest level in the absence of a powerful and forthright king. Separate armed disputes continued between the greater families in Derbyshire, Gloucestershire, and East Anglia while the West Country continued to convulse thanks to the dispute between the Courtneys and the Bonville family. In Warwickshire, the arrival of a new lord, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, resulted in several serious disturbances, while in Yorkshire a very serious clash was brewing between Neville's extended family and the traditionally dominant Percy family, a dispute they would descend by the mid-1450s into something akin to a northern civil war. The dissolution of stable relations between the magnates of England gradually undermined their collective abilities to stand together, as they did at Dartford in March 1452. In the short term, however, the faith of the political community lay with Edmund, Duke of Somerset, rather than Richard, Duke of York. For the second time in eighteen months, York's efforts to impose himself on the crown in the name of the common good had come to nothing. York's defeat handed Somerset an unquestionable mandate, and he began to exert himself in government. Out of nowhere, Henry VI suddenly seemed to become a vigorous and energetic king. Law and order remained a problem, but in other areas the government began to make progress. The Earl of Shrewsbury was sent to Kent to continue attempts to prevent and punish the stream of rebellions in the county. Judicial proceedings were launched against those who had supported York in his abortive Dartford rising, including a thorough destruction of Sir William Oldhall, his life in sanctuary at St. Martin's Le Grand was made daily more miserable by legal action that stripped him of most of his property, and loaded him with the shameful status of an outlaw. York's position as Lieutenant of Ireland was given to James Butler, the young Earl of Ormond and Wiltshire, who had been close to York in 1451, but now moved decisively towards Somerset's circle. In a further mark of confidence, the court toured the marches of Wales and the east of England, areas where York held large tracts of land, dispensing justice and bringing the King into the view of his people. There was even limited success across the Channel. Early in 1452 the government had begun to suggest, apparently in all seriousness, That the king might lead a military campaign to rescue what remained of England's possessions in Gascony. This didn't come to fruition, but in October 1452 news arrived that an advanced force sent under John Talbot, the formidable Earl of Shrewsbury, had won several splendid victories. Bordeaux had been recaptured with ease from the French, and much of the area around the city rallied back to the English flag. This was the best news to have arrived from France in many months, and when Parliament met at Reading in March 1453, it responded generously, voting a subsidy in the form of a 15th and 10th, a fixed tax on property, as well as a tax payable on wool exports, which was to be paid every year for the rest of the King's life. The Parliament also received a petition concerning two young men who, who had grown up in relative quiet amid all the turbulence and danger of the 1450s, Edmund and Jasper Tudor. In November 1452, as a way to bolster the ranks of the immediate royal family, the Tudor boys had been elevated jointly to the peerage. Edmund was made Earl of Richmond, while Jasper was created Earl of Pembroke the Parliament of 1453 was successfully moved to declare them legitimate half-brothers of the King. The Latin petition began by praising the famous memory of Queen Catherine de Valois, and then calling on Parliament to esteem highly and to honour with all zeal, as much as our insignificance allows, all the fruit which her royal womb produced. In this case, the illustrious and magnificent princes, the lords Edmund de Haddam and Jasper de Hatfield, natural and legitimate sons of the same most serene lady, the Queen. The praise was uncommonly high. By their most noble character they are of a most refined nature, the petition read, they were also lauded for their other natural gifts, endowments, excellent and heroic virtues, and other merits of a laudable life. Notwithstanding the fact that, being half Welsh and half French, neither had a drop of English blood in their veins, they and their heirs were confirmed in their right to hold property and titles. The Tudor boys having left almost no mark on the historical record since their education in Barking Abbey during the late 1430s and early 1440s, were suddenly promoted into the front rank of the aristocracy, their noble blood and royal relations trumpeted. In a highly unsubtle dig at York, lands seized from the now-ruined Sir William Oldhall were granted out as part of Jasper, Earl of Pembroke's new-landed estate. At almost exactly the same time came more good news. In the early spring of 1453, Queen Margaret, who had for so long been the object of public derision for her failure to produce an heir, became pregnant. Notwithstanding the difficulties of childbirth and the infant mortality rate of the time, there was a real prospect that a direct heir to the Crown would soon provide England with a new focus, and that any questions of noble precedence would finally wither away. The Queen was delighted, and on discovering her pregnancy, immediately set out for Walsingham in Norfolk, to give thanks at the famous shrine to the Virgin Mary. Henry VI rewarded the servant who brought him the news with a jewel known as a demi-saint. All England stirred in happiness. Even York's wife Cecily, whose relations with the queen were more cordial than those between her husband and the king, was moved to write to Margaret, remarking that her unborn child was the most precious, most joyful, and most comfortable earthly treasure that might come into this land and to the people thereof. Finally, After so much misery, so much strife, it appeared that God was smiling on the reign of King Henry VI. Then, on July 17, 1453, in a field near Castillon, a town on the banks of the Dordogne, just twenty-six miles east of Bordeaux, an English army under Talbot was annihilated by the cannons and cavalry of a French force commanded by Jean Bureau. Talbot, the brilliant veteran of half a century of warfare, who was known as the English Achilles and the Terror of the French, died alongside thousands of his men, charging headlong into a hail of artillery fire. The English were routed, and within three months Bordeaux would once again fall under French control. It would prove to be the final, unequivocal defeat in a war that had been waged since 1337, and was greeted in England as the calamity it was. No one reacted more terribly to the news than Henry VI. In August, as the court was touring the West Country, Henry fell into a former stupor, the crippling, vacant, catatonic insanity of a waking coma, under whose grotesque spell he would remain for fifteen months. At a stroke, England was once again kingless, and soon madness would engulf not just the king, but his kingdom too. Chapter 9 Smitten with a Frenzy Henry's illness came upon him while he was staying at his hunting lodge in Clarendon, near Salisbury. It struck suddenly and overwhelmingly, and although for several weeks the king's condition remained a secret, when he failed to recover it became impossible to conceal the fact that he was profoundly and shockingly unwell. The men around him had no specific name for his ailment, they could only describe its symptoms. The king suddenly was taken and smitten with a frenzy, and his wit and reasons withdrawn, wrote one. To another, he was merely sick. He became completely helpless, removed both from his wits and the world around him to the point of total vacuity. He recognized no one. He couldn't speak or respond in any way to questions. He could neither feed nor clean himself, since he had no control of his arms or legs, and couldn't even keep his head up. He had no sense of time. No physician could stir him. No medicine could stimulate him. His grandfather, Charles VI of France, had also suffered numerous bouts of insanity, but whereas Charles's madness had led him to scream in pain, smear himself in his own waist, and run, deranged, through the royal palaces, Henry was simply mute and inert—a kingly nothing. Even when sane, Henry had been a fairly weak and impotent force in government, now that he was so obviously indisposed, however, Somerset and the rest of his councillors were presented with a dire problem. When the king was healthy, they possessed an animated, if ineffectual, puppet, through whom government could legitimately be carried out by a small group working as his chosen ministers. But with the king devoid of reason and will, their mandate to rule in his name disappeared. The king had all the will and capacity of a newborn baby, which meant that a situation similar to Henry's long minority in the 1420s was once again upon the realm. There was a royal person who could be said to reign, but he had no ability whatever to rule. Just as in the 1420s, a communal response was required. Although the turbulence in England and the dire situation in the meagre rump of English France demanded constant attention, A political reaction to Henry's illness was nevertheless delayed as long as possible, probably with the dual aim of hoping, rather vainly, that he would recover, and waiting for the Queen's pregnancy to run its term. The second of these came to pass, on October 13, 1453, the feast day of Edward the Confessor, one of the holiest and most venerated saints in England, with special importance to the royal family. In a chamber at Westminster, Margaret of Anjou was delivered of her first child, a boy. The child was called Edward, a princely name that not only spoke to the auspicious day of his birth, but recalled times of greater glory, the days of the baby's great-great-great-grandfather, Edward III. Wherefore the bells rang in every church, and te deums were sung, wrote one observer. The Duke of Somerset stood godfather at Prince Edward's baptism. If the birth was cause for great joy, it was also clear that the torpor of the boy's father could no longer be ignored. It was important to construct a working government, and it was vital that this government should be genuinely inclusive. The king's mental collapse had coincided with and may indeed have contributed to a huge escalation of violence, particularly in the north of England. Long-simmering hostility between the Neville and Percy families, who were rivals for power in Yorkshire, Cumbria, and Northumberland, had descended into more or less open warfare. On August the twenty-fourth, 1454, Thomas Percy, Lord Egremont, and an army of retainers numbering perhaps a thousand men, ambushed a wedding party celebrating the marriage of Sir Thomas Neville and Maud Stanhope. The immediate cause was a disputed inheritance. The beautiful manor and castle of wrestle which had once belonged to the Percys, would come into the hands of the Nevilles by way of Sir Thomas's marriage to the Stanhope heir. But this was one small battle in a much bigger struggle. The Purses sensed, with some justification, that the Neville family was gradually displacing them as the most powerful family of the North. This, in turn, was a pressing problem for central government. The North of England appeared to be on the brink of civil war, as all pleas and instructions to cease hostilities issued by Somerset's government had been ignored. Because the feud involved the two most powerful families in the region, there was no authority save the kings that was able to put a stop to massive and disastrous bloodshed. As soon as Prince Edward was born, a great council of all the senior lords and churchmen in the realm was summoned to meet as soon as possible. At first, the intention was to exclude York from its membership— But on October 24th a letter was sent, addressed by the King, to his right trusty and well-beloved cousin, summoning the Duke from his estates to attend the gathering in London. It isn't clear who drafted the letter, since it is signed in Henry's name. However, the messenger who took the letter was told to advise York to put aside the variance betwixt him and Somerset, and to come to the said council peaceably and measurably accompanied, with the aim of securing rest and union betwixt the lords of this land. York arrived at Westminster on November the 12th, but he didn't come in a conciliatory mood. His first action was to have his sometime ally, the Duke of Norfolk, launch a vehement attack on Somerset, before the council, once again accusing him of treason in losing France. Norfolk demanded Somerset's imprisonment, and in the confusion crisis of the moment, browbeaten by his aggressive demands, a majority of the lords assembled, consented. The duke was arrested and sent to the tower to await trial. A few days later the lords once again gathered in council at the star chamber, and were individually sworn on a book that they would keep their troth and allegiance to the king. After several years of failure, York was now finally at the centre of affairs. He didn't occupy his position unchallenged. In January 1454, the Queen, having recovered from the birth of Prince Edward, made her own bid for power. Margaret had long been close to Somerset, and to the royal household through which so much of the government had proceeded, and it seems that her intention was to fight York's dominance by any means she could. The dumbstruck King Henry had shown no signs of recognising his son when Margaret and Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, took the baby to see his father at Windsor Castle. All their labour was in vain— for they departed thence without any answer or countenance, saving only that once he looked on the prince and cast down his eyes again without any more. Nevertheless, it was clear that, in possession of the baby, Margaret had the opportunity to build a different, rival power-base to York's. In the new year she published a bill of five articles, in which she demanded— to have the whole rule of this land, as well as a right to appoint all the great officers of state, sheriffs and bishops, and sufficient livelihood assigned her for the king and the prince and herself. Margaret's efforts were bold, but they weren't unprecedented. Although female rule was uncommon in the fifteenth century, it wasn't completely unknown. England's own history held examples, Queen Isabella, had ruled as regent for Edward III between 1327 and 1330, and before her Eleanor of Aquitaine had been granted extensive powers of governance during the reigns of her husband Henry II and her son Richard the Lionheart. Perhaps more pertinently, Margaret had in her early life seen her mother and grandmother taking command of government in Anjou and Naples while Duke René languished in captivity, however, in the crisis of 1453 to 54, the last desire of the English lords, or for that matter the Parliamentary Commons, was to experiment with a new model of female rule. Margaret's bill was cordially rejected. As a mollifying measure, on March the 15th, 1454. The five-month-old Edward was created Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester. This was as far as accommodation with the Queen went. A week later, Margaret's close ally, Cardinal Kemp, Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of England, died. In desperation, the Lord sent another delegation to the King to see if they could coax from him some indication of whom he wished his new Archbishop to be. Once again, they reported to the Parliament, which took a keen interest in the King's condition, that they could get no answer nor sign. The Lords left with sorrowful hearts. The crisis of authority had worsened. On March 27th, the Lords in Parliament agreed to elect Richard, Duke of York, as Protector of the Realm and Chief Counselor. His rise was complete. There were many who held grave reservations about York's suitability for the role of protector. Their fears weren't realised. Although he appointed as a new chancellor Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, patriarch of the Neville family whose feuding with the Perses was tearing apart the North, York's government attempted in general to be tough, even-handed, and non-partisan. He went in person to the North, to make a serious attempt to arbitrate between the Neville's and the Percy's. In the course of this, he imprisoned his own son-in-law, the violent and feckless Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter, in Pontefract Castle, as punishment for involving himself in the Northern War, and thereby directly disobeying the oath sworn by all the lords to keep and respect royal authority during the king's illness. York appointed himself as captain of Calais, and resumed his lieutenancy of Ireland, but these were actions natural and conducive to strong leadership rather than representative of his seizing the spoils of office. Other grants, which were modestly made, were given out on non-partisan lines. The Queen, the Duke of Buckingham, and Jasper, and Edmund Tudor all received grants of lands or offices— during York's protectorship, whereas men supposedly closer to York, such as Salisbury's eldest son, the Earl of Warwick, also called Richard Neville, received nothing. Yet there was one glaring area in which York's policy of peace and conciliation failed. He couldn't normalise relations with Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. Throughout 1454 Somerset remained locked away in the tower. He kept keenly abreast of news from the outside world through a network of undercover agents, spies going in every lord's house of this land, some gone as friars, some as shipmen, and some in other wise, which report unto him all that they can see. To have killed Somerset— would have been a destructively divisive act. In prison, therefore, he was able to study the situation and bide his time, hoping, as the popular image had it, that fortune's wheel would shortly give another turn. On Christmas Day, 1454, more than a year after he had been stricken, Henry VI woke up. His senses flooded back as quickly as they had first rushed out of him. Two days after Christmas he was ordering his almoner to deliver gifts of thanks to the shrine at Canterbury, and on Monday, December the 30th, Queen Margaret took the 14-month-old prince to see his father. Henry asked what the prince's name was, and the queen told him Edward, and then he held up his hands and thanked God thereof. He had no memory of anything that had been said or done during his stupor. But he seemed extremely happy to have recovered, and when his ministers found that he could once more speak to them as well as he ever did, they wept for joy. The same couldn't be said for York. Henry's recovery didn't simply end at the Protectorate. It led directly to the reversal of most of the means York had pursued Over the course of the last year. By January the 26th, 1455, Somerset had been released from prison, and by March the 4th, the charges of treason against him were dropped. York was formally stripped of the protectorate on February the 9th. In a sign of the absolute repudiation of York's primary case against Somerset, that he was treasonably negligent in his dealings with the French, York was stripped of his captaincy of Calais, and it was awarded once more to Somerset. York's ally Richard, Earl of Salisbury, was forced to resign the chancellorship. In mid-March, Salisbury's son, the Earl of Warwick, was ordered to release Henry Holland, the scheming and belligerent Duke of Exeter, from his entirely deserved place in prison at Pontefract. As Somerset and his allies raced back into their old positions in government and at the side of the king, York and the Nevilles were forced to abandon court. Despite the protector's genuinely purposeful actions in trying to maintain government during the royal madness, he now found himself stripped of his posts, authority and dignity, as though he had been a usurper. The only possible conclusion York could draw was that with Somerset beside the king he would forever be treated as an enemy of the crown, denied his proper place in the realm as if he were nothing but a scoundrel and a rebel. York had been bound by the king and a council of the lords to keep his peace with Somerset until June, on pain of a fine of twenty thousand marks. But peace was no longer an option. With the Neville's York now went north to follow the only course of action that was left to him. He began to raise an army. York and the Nevilles, led by the father and son earls of Salisbury and Warwick, were now thrown together in a friendship of common cause. Between them, they controlled much of northern England, and since the Nevilles existed in a state of war readiness owing to their struggles with the house of Percy, It didn't prove difficult for the Allies to raise their retainers to form a small army during the spring of 1455. They had, by their own later admission, great might of men in diverse countries, much harness, that is, armour, and great habiliments of war. It's important to note that for York the purpose of raising an armed force was to remove Somerset and the traitors around the king— this, to his mind, was a very different matter from rebellion, and certainly dynastic rebellion against Henry VI himself. It's questionable, however, how many of the men who served beneath him would have appreciated the subtle difference. All the same, they were raised with efficient haste in April and May, and the news of York and the Nevilles' mobilisation, although perhaps not its scale, soon reached the court and council at Westminster. Somerset, at this point, panicked and dithered. Notwithstanding the London populace's general preference for York over him, the obvious course of action ought still to have been to raise a royal army, set to defend the capital, and allow a repeat of the Dartford Conflicts of 1452 to occur. Instead, a decision was made to move the King's household and the Lords attending the King north. A great council, not quite a parliament, although the summonses went out on a broad scale to England's lords, along with a selection of hand-picked knights expected to be favourable to Somerset's regime, was called to meet at Leicester, a town in the heart of the Duchy of Lancaster, the king's private landholding. York and his allies were invited, so it seems thus at least one aspect of the Dartford episode was in mind the government hoped to impose a new settlement upon Somerset and York, and, most likely, one that would embarrass York in public, with an oath of loyalty of the type he had been forced to swear at St. Paul's. This wasn't something York was prepared to countenance. He may also have thought of the fate of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, who had been summoned to a Parliament in Bury St. Edmunds in 1447, and had never returned. There was the distinct possibility of armed confrontation at Leicester. In mid-May, as the King and his supporters prepared to travel north, requests were sent to lords and townsmen along the route, requiring them to send armed men to the King, wheresoever we be in all haste possible. The destination for assembly was the town of St. Albans, in Hertfordshire, which lay conveniently along the road between London and Leicester. On the morning of Tuesday, May the twentieth, the king and his entourage set out from Westminster along this very route. Ahead of them went messengers with letters to York, Salisbury, and Warwick, demanding that they disband their armies immediately, and come to the king attended by no more than one hundred and sixty men each, in the Neville's case. And two hundred in the case of York. By the time the letters reached York and the Nevilles, they had reached Royston, a town a few miles southwest of Cambridge, and less than a day's ride from St. Albans. They replied to the orders to disband with a letter addressed to the Chancellor who had replaced Salisbury, Thomas Boucher, the forty four year old Archbishop of Canterbury. We hear that a great rumour and wonder is had of our coming, and of the manner thereof, toward the most noble presence of the King, our most redoubted Sovereign Lord, they wrote. It was vital for York and his allies that they should establish themselves as the true defenders of the common good in the face of Somerset's treacherous government. So they added, We intend not with God's grace to proceed to any matter or thing, other than with God's mercy shall be to his pleasure the honour, prosperity and weal of our said sovereign lord, his said land and people. More ominously, the Yorkists also promised the Chancellor that for the sake of the kingdom they would do whatever accordeth with our duty, to that may be the surety of the King's most noble person, wherein will neither spare our bodies nor goods. By the time the letter reached Chancellor Boucher, the King's party had left Westminster. The men around Henry hardly consisted of a partisan group. The King was attended by men as diverse in their political outlooks as his faithful half-brother Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, the Percy Patriarch, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, the independent-minded Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, the former Yorkist ally Thomas Courtney, Earl of Devon, and the Earl of Salisbury's brother William Neville, Lord Falkenburg. Other great nobles included the Earl of Wiltshire and Lords Clifford, Roos, Seudley, Dudley, and Berners. Perhaps in anticipation of confrontation, Queen Margaret was left behind, and only one bishop travelled with the king although several others probably followed at a safe distance. The party had passed out of London, and by nightfall on Wednesday, May the 21st, they were lodged in Watford, seven miles south of St Albans. At dawn they rose to continue their journey, planning to arrive in the town in good time to settle and enjoy their midday meal at the splendid Abbey. But as morning arrived— So did a messenger, bearing the alarming news that York and his army were close by. They had camped the night in Ware and weren't only ahead of the King's party on their way to St. Albans, but were said to have with them around three thousand men. The King's party numbered closer to two thousand. The sense that something between an armed showdown and a pitched battle loomed sparked action in the royal party. Conciliatory action was urgently required. Early on the morning of Thursday, May the 22nd, Somerset was abruptly relieved of his post as Constable of England, by which he commanded the King's military forces. He was immediately replaced in the office by Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, who, as the most senior Duke at the King's side, had the presence to represent the royal interest, was far less personally obnoxious to York and the Neville's. Buckingham seems to have believed that he would be able to negotiate a settlement without bloodshed. The party rode on to St. Albans, arriving at about 9 a.m. The Yorkists had arrived two hours earlier, and were camped in the quay field just to the east of the town centre. There were diverse knights and squires unto their party and they were perfectly visible to the king's party as they came to a halt in the middle of St. Albans on St. Peter's Street, below the massive silhouette of the Abbey Church. The townsmen, realising that their lives and homes were in some peril, manned the defences which took the form of barricades around the unwalled settlement. They were reinforced by knights loyal to the king, and between nine and ten a.m. messengers passed between the two sides as they tried to negotiate a settlement. The talks with York were conducted by the Dukes of Buckingham and Somerset, who claimed that they were speaking directly for the King. It's unlikely that Henry knew very much about what was happening. He hadn't seen York's initial petitions, and one of the first stages of negotiation involved York's demand that the letters he had sent actually be placed under the royal nose. Henry may have recovered from his illness, but his role at St. Albans remained passive and symbolic. York's principal demands hadn't changed, but only hardened since Dartford. He wanted Somerset, and he was prepared to use any means to obtain him. In response to this, Buckingham could do little but stall for time, and await both the bishops who were following behind the royal party, and the military reinforcements that had been requested from around the country. He asked York to remove his men to a nearby town for the night, while negotiations could continue through suitable proxies, and he absolutely refused to hand over the Duke of Somerset. Whether or not York was prepared to continue negotiations into a second day will never be known. At around ten a.m., while talks were continuing, men under the Earl of Warwick grew sick of waiting, and began an assault against the barricades on the fringes of the town. Within St. Albans, the King's banner was raised over the royal forces. The talking time was over. Fighting had begun. Defence of the barricades was commanded by Thomas Lord Clifford, an experienced soldier who had served for some time in the north, battling the Scots in the marches. He was later considered to have manned the barriers to St. Albans strongly, and probably held the line outside the town for around an hour. York, however, had the superior numbers, and by around eleven a.m. the skirmishing was turning in favour of the attacking forces. Warwick took a flanking party to the thoroughfare known as Hollywell Street, which led into St. Peter's Street, where the royal party was amassed. They smashed down palisades and the walls of houses, and finally broke open an entry point between two inns, known as the Quay and the Chequer, through which their men could pour into the town, blowing trumpets and shouting, Warwick, 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 at the top of their voices. As soon as they clapped eyes on the King's forces, they set on them manfully. St. Albans was soon overrun. Amazingly, it seems that Buckingham and Somerset had failed to prepare for the possibility that the barricades would fall so swiftly. For as the town bell was rung in urgent alarm, and fighting spilled from street to street, there was a general scramble for the defenders to pull on their full armour— They were unprepared and overwhelmed, and when one of York's allies, Sir Robert Ogle, brought several hundred men crashing into the marketplace, blades slashing and arrows fizzing through the late morning air, the short conflict was effectively decided in favour of York's men. From the puncturing of the barriers the fighting lasted around half an hour, but it was a shocking experience all the same. In the middle of the melee stood the king himself, terror presumably spreading across his pale, round face, for the son of Henry V had managed to reach the age of thirty-three without ever having stood before a siege or in the chaos of a battle. Like the best of his lords, he was imperfectly armoured, and was lucky to survive when a stray arrow blooded his neck. Forsooth and forsooth! the king is said to have remarked, employing his favourite and only oath. Ye do foully to smite a king anointed so. For his protection, if not the maintenance of his royal dignity, Henry was hustled into a nearby tanner's cottage to hide, while the street-fighting played out. As he left, his banner, which in every battle was to be upheld to the death, was easily pulled to the ground, its defenders scattering into the streets. After only a short stay in his reeking hideaway, Henry was captured and taken away to proper safety in the precincts of the Abbey. York's men had absolutely no interest in doing him physical harm, for it was a crucial component of the Duke's political campaign to argue that he was fighting for and not against the King. But Henry's companions weren't so lucky. York and the Neville's had come to St. Albans to eliminate their enemies, and in the disorder they had created, they were able to... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening